humanity is not forever chained to this planet, and our visions go rather further than that, and our opportunities are unlimited. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby space. Matt, that was mm-hmm. Neil Armstrong. I love Neil Armstrong. Isn't he great? Amazing. Uh, yes, so 49 years ago, on July the 21st, 1969, at 2.58 UTC. Matt, I think you'll find it was 2.56. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah, I've just been rubbing my eyes. 2.56 UTC. Yes, Neil Armstrong became the first person to walk upon the surface of another celestial body. I mean, as far as feats go... Feet? Did you mean that in a sort of double thing? Double meaning. (laughs) Double meaning of feet. That's a pretty good one, isn't it? It's amazing. And his footprint's still there. Do you think... And will be for a long time. ...that he had a list of goals, and then after that it was like, oh, what am I going to do now? No, because he kind of... That's the great thing about Neil Armstrong, wasn't it? It's just like, yeah, I've done that. And it must be hard, and I'll tell you who's finding it a little bit hard, is the old buzz, that yes. um, that it must be very, very hard once you've achieved like something that, that you really can't really achieve anything much greater than that. I mean, can you imagine if he went on to do something even more amazing? Oh, it's ridiculous. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> but, but he did go off and do some really, really good things and do the things that he wanted to do and didn't want to really be completely defined as the person that first stepped on the moon. Yeah, I just think it's the most amazing thing that humanity has ever done. I've often said this, Neil Armstrong will go down as the most famous person from this era because it's just the fact that he's the first to do it. He he can't be replaced. So in like, even like 3,000 years time, he'll still be the first person that stepped on the moon. Yeah. He walked on (laughs) another... World. Yeah, and it's not, and it, and it ain't any time soon that it's going to get redone, is it? So anyway, poor old Buzz Aldrin isn't the first person to walk on the moon, and it's really what's really he's weird. He's not having the best time, is he? And he's not having the best time right now. And yeah, poor old Buzz. Come on, Buzz. We still it. love you, Buzz. Oh, yeah, everyone loves you, Buzz. And you, you were, you, you were joint first to land on the moon. I was going to say, let's not feel too sorry for him. <laughs> joint first to land on the moon. I'd love that. I'd love that stat. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, I can see it's mildly irritating to always be the second person to step on the moon, but it is a big deal. Always the bridesmaid. <laughs> it's a bit like me. You mean I was going to say me, you. Because when we but, walk around, everyone always recognises me and they say, oh, are you Jamie from Interplanetary Podcast? Yeah, and I'm just standing well, going, well, what? Right, do you know Matt? <laughs> they Matt say, who cares? And they say, Matt who? Who cares? <laughs> hey, Matt, have we had any letters from our listeners? We have had a reader's letter. Go and on, I really man. wanted to read this out because it was after he listened to the... Uh, um, after he listened to our Romain Charles interview. Romain. So... His, his, what he said is, what secret horrors are the Russians hiding about 
what went down in that isolation cell. What happened to Roman to tear him away from his dream of one-way Mars colonization? Is Roman only a very accurate copy of the version of himself that went in? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Are any of us really the same people that we used to be? Whether the transformation is born from the mind-bending horrors of life in a universe of increasing entropy or from 3D human cloning machines, our transformation to who we are today reveals that we have been robbed of something essential and precious that made us who we were yesterday. <laughs> Jesus wept. I love that. Hashtag justice for Romain. Hashtag we want truth about Mars 500. Hashtag innocence lost. Hashtag blame the Chinese. <laughs> I, I, I want to add one more. Hashtag blame Trump. Oh, yes. Blame yeah. Elon. Yes. Blame I'll Elon. I'll tell you what, Matt. <laughs> I mean, that is genius. I love that. I love and that. I'll tell you what, some big questions that we need answered. Yeah, absolutely. Should we get Romain back on the phone? We should. We should ask him if he has been replaced. Oh, my God. Do you think he might be? Does it take five... Maybe it takes 520 days to to build a replicant. Maybe that's what it's all about. Do you think he might be one? Maybe... Maybe the way Trump's been behaving, he's a replicant, oh and that and he went to Helsinki to pick up some spare parts from Putin. Cool, Harrison. <laughs> we definitely need a Blade Runner. Um, Musk has gone mental. Well, we just mentioned his name. I mean, drink. As you know, we are massive fans of the man's work. What we're not massive fans of is his recent mental breakdown uh, via Twitter. What's he doing, Matt? Uh, I'm not quite sure what he's doing. But, but like you said, you said we were having this discussion earlier, and you said it's just totally unnecessary. Yeah, doesn't need to do this. When you've got someone as cool as Alan Bond saying that you are his hero... Well, this is Alan Bond. Listen to I mean, just listen to that Alan Bond and what he's achieved in his life and mm. how ridiculous he is and he's saying Elon Musk is his hero so why do you have to get narky with someone because they thought one of your ideas was a bit rubbish it's just ridiculous yeah. and then <laughs> call them a pedo I mean yeah that was well the only explanation I can think of Jamie is that maybe that guy was wearing a pair of speedos and the S had fallen off yeah because he was doing a lot of diving Although I'm a bit worried, Matt, because he has deleted all of those tweets. Um, but it has gone out to his 22 million followers. Yeah. So... And I can't imagine that it that the poor old chap... I smell a lawsuit. Vern Unsworth was particularly happy about it. He definitely wasn't happy. No. So, yeah. Nor would you be. So, Musk, chill out. You literally just Just chill. do what you're good at. Put the phone out. Down. Yeah. And stop calling people. Yeah, no, look, 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 there's nothing wrong with Elon coming up with some great ideas and, 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 and trying to do no, stuff. No, and I defend him on that because people were saying, oh, you know, and he genuinely was trying to help. But the way he responded <laughs> to people saying it wasn't the right <sighs> thing was really bad. <laughs> Just really bad. He needs, he needs PR help. Matt, he does PR, he? needs PR help. Only we knew someone that could help him. I know. Oh. Well, we'll keep thinking. We'll keep thinking. Uh, so, I, I'm going to declare, we're recording this on a Tuesday, by the way, for all those people out there in, in Wonderland, and obviously this is coming out on Friday, but um, yesterday, Monday the 16th, mm. I think is one of the most exciting days in UK space history. Oh, it has to be. 
I literally, I, as the news unfolded during the day, because we'd, we'd kind of had a, a sort of heads up that it was happening. We mentioned it on the podcast a few weeks ago, yes. how the Cornish uh, County Council were getting uh, excited about an announcement coming up mm-hmm. at Farnborough. But I must admit, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't uh, foresee some of this stuff. I, I literally, I, it was, it's, it's all completely well, for off me, the bat for me. It's the timeline. I mean, that is so exciting. Oh yeah. So yeah, look, it looks like. Well, then that, we haven't just got one spaceport. We've got two spaceports that seem like they could actually be launching within the next five years. Actually, launching before we see either SLS or the launch of James Webb's. Space telescope. I mean, so much of the news that we talk about is always launches 20, in, in twenty two. Well, or 23. no, but ge- you know, geographically in Russia, in America, you know, but to have it on our home soil. Yeah, literally. It, wow. Well, it's the only launch in Europe. Yeah. I mean, what half this program we're going to be talking about the European spaceport of which which uh, my little trip there and, and we've got three interviews uh little interviews with the people at the European spaceport so this is a spaceport special but i actually nice. genuinely thought you know European spaceport that's really cool but then suddenly really the European spaceport is going to actually be in the UK in in and it actually doesn't look Matt, completely how, unreasonable either. How think. exciting would it be to say, oh, there's a launch next week, let's just drive down, it'll take three hours. Yeah. Yes. Now, here, here's the thing. So there's two places. So we've got, uh, we've got Sutherland in Scotland, right? Right. Now, this is a name I wasn't expecting to hear, Lockheed Martin. So Lockheed Martin are the people that have just won this $31 million mm. to uh, basically develop... Uh, this spaceport in Sutherland, and what vehicle are they going to be using? Again, this like blew me out of the water, and someone actually suggested this. I think it was Richard Hollings, Holling, Hollingham suggested this while we were um, out at the European spaceport. Was we were going to use the electron? We could use the electron, as in oh. the Kiwis electron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it turns out that yeah, that Lockheed Martin had actually invested in Rocket Lab, and so. That's one of the reasons why. So they'll build a sort of British version of rocket of of the Electron, nice. of Rocket Lab's Electron for this Sutherland uh, Scottish um, launch site. I mean, how cool is that? That's super cool. And and then even better. Cool. And, and you're going to love this, even yeah. though it's a rival synth manufacturer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, it's not actually a rival. It's a pretend driver because it's not the same company. But Lockheed Martin are going to develop a uh, a orbital manoeuvring vehicle up a stage called the SLOMV or the Small Launch Orbital Manoeuvring Vehicle or the SLOMV. The SLOMV. Uh, and yeah, that's going to be manufactured by Moog in it's the UK. It's actually pronounced Moog. Matt. Well, I, well, see, Moog the synthesizer is pronounced Moog. Oh, but I think Moog the rocket parts company in the UK is pronounced Moog. Do you? Yeah, but I actually don't know. Should we call them up? We call say, them up. Let's get them, let's get them we'll up. We'll ring them up and then see what the receptionist says. Yeah. And say, hello. Welcome to Moog. Welcome to Moog UK. And I'll be like, told you. Um, yeah. Well, that is exciting. Yeah, so Moog. So go on, Lockheed. Go on, Lockheed. And uh, it's working on some satellites with orbital microsystems 
that is going to be the first flight on this thing. So this is all pretty serious stuff. A six so little CubeSat. Yeah, little 6U CubeSat that's going to go around collecting weather data. And yeah, so I think that's really, really cool. That is really cool. We have to be at the first one. Oh no, absolutely. Oh my no gosh. Brainer. But that might be like 2021, 2022. I can wait. But it's not, not, not long, is it? Well, what are you going to wear? I think I'm going to... I might even buy some new jeans. <laughs> <laughs> it's a momentous uh, uh, occasion. I'm though. definitely wearing my Dharma Initiative t-shirt. Oh, and see how many geeks there are there. Yeah. Um, but not only is this Electron going to be flying from uh, Scotland, mm. but we might see an actual British built like a totally British-built native launcher as well, called the Prime by a company called Orbex. Oof. Yeah, and they've developed this uh, vehicle, and they've managed to get $40 million of funding from European venture capital firms, such as mm. Sunstone Technology Ventures and the high-tech Grundenfond. Sounds very European. <laughs> Grundenfond, Yeah. It's actually a bit like Grinder Fund, Grinder Fund, Grinder Finds, Grinder Fund, which is it's the German app everyone <laughs> needs. Uh, yeah, so um, and this yes, Prime is going to be a sort of environmentally friendly launcher. So it's like a it, it's using special fuel, biopropane, rather than normal, you know, dangerous things like kerosene that aren't very nice. Well, we are advocates, aren't we, Matt, of, of trying to Keep the planet in good nick. Yeah, absolutely. And this minimises the environmental impact uh, because it's low mass, low carbon, uses a single renewable fuel, biopropane, and cuts carbon emissions by 90% Ooh. compared to the uh, old-fashioned hydrocarbon fuels. That's a lot. Yeah. Good on you. Yeah. So, amazing. So, I'm, I'm going to try and get a, a little chat with Orbex. We should get uh, them on the blower, And I'm we? definitely going to check out their stand at Farnborough Air Show. Hell yeah. Hell yeah! So, we're going to high, uh, Yeah, we're going to Farnborough Air Show. That's this Saturday, That's isn't it? I think we're going Sunday. Sunday? Oh, I can't remember. Sunday, I think. I can't remember. We'll discuss this off air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... Yeah, the High Highlands and Islands Enterprise has been given like two point five million dollars from the UK government to help nice. to help run this um, uh, spaceport. But of course, there's been a bit of local protest. Oh. Uh, uh, residents have been divided. There's a, so there's a crofting township, whatever that is, um, of about two hundred people at Talmine on the Kyle of Tongue. <laughs> I'm not even making that up. <laughs> a crofting... No, let me repeat that okay, sentence. here we go. A crofting township of about 200 people at Talmine on the Kyle of Tongue. <laughs> that <laughs> I've not made that up. Is incre I think we should print that off. Hey, 200 people down at Talmine on the Kyle of Tongue. Hey, hey. I need some crofting township. <laughs> Uh, yeah, actually, I think wow. that was a more appropriate Kyle Scottish. Kyle of Tongue. Kyle of Tongue. I mean, now, that sounds remote. Yeah. Some are very, very pro. Some people have real concerns. Well, I'm not surprised that they have concerns. And the feelings are very strong. Yeah. That's what Councillor Linda Munro said. 
from the Sutherland County Committee. Wow, that, that's her moment in the sun right there. It really is. So anyway, not only have we got a, hor a vertical launch site mm -hmm. in Sutherland, we have a horizontal one, the other side of the country, oh. down in Newquay. Just for our um, non-UK geography conversant listeners. Well said. Thank you. Uh, we have... Uh, one way of measuring the longest distance in the UK is going from Land's End to John O'Groats. Mm -hmm. Now, John O'Groats is pretty near the Scottish launch site, and Land's End, of course, is very near the Newquay launch site. Mm -hmm. So they're actually about as far away as you could possibly they be really in, in Britain. So, But how, how cool is this? So Virgin Orbit have revealed plans to conduct orbital rocket launches from the Cornwall Airport Newquay by 2021. I love this. They might, by then, have accepted my job application to be crew. Oh, yes. Which I still haven't heard back from. I applied six years ago. I wonder if we can fly on the beautiful plane. Do you know what the plane's called? Uh, it used to be White Knight. No, but this is different. See, White Knight carries their um, carries their human launch vehicle, oh, right. Spaceship Two, but this is for carrying a small launcher. You, you know, Pegasus. Wait it's a minute, a bit you like don't that. mean Cosmic Girl? Do I you? do mean Cosmic Girl, which used to be a seven four seven former Virgin Atlantic Boeing. So it's a seven four seven, and it's called Cosmic Girl, and it flies these rockets up as far as it can go, and then the rockets launch from underneath and blast into space. Cosmic guy. It's very Branson, isn't it? Very Branson. Branson, why don't you come on the show and tell us all about uh, about this? Do if you know you're what? listening, Dickie, I, I was I was really pleased to see what, um, what they said on their website. They did say that, uh, he said, although Virgin Orbit is a company based in California, we feel as though we have a real British heritage and we can't wait to come home, essentially. And I thought oh, that was really cool. I hope so. so Put I'm, your money where your mouth is, Branage. And of course, so yeah, Launcher 1 is the rocket that's going to go under the left wing of this Boeing 747. And uh, yeah, can deploy rockets, into very small satellites, into orbit. Now, the one thing I th do think about that, I don't think it's going to be a particularly exciting place to go see the launch, because of course this plane's just going to take off and it's just going to look a little bit like a 747 taking off from an airport. Yes. Which isn't the most exciting thing in the world. No. Although my mate Greg did have that as his birthday party once of going down to Birmingham <laughs> Airport and watching the planes take off. Oh my goodness. Uh, how old were you? <laughs> I don't know, about seven or eight. And we, Even then we were sort of all looking around. three weeks ago. No, 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 no. No, Greg runs a very hard pub in Australia, so... When you say hard pub, do you mean the, the brick walls are... Are tough or no, that the clientele oh, clientele will slice your face off and Ooh. stuff like that. So, that's not a knife, that's a knife. <laughs> that's that exactly, what they say? exactly right. Yeah. yeah, now what's the what's what's the area with King's Cross in it? Sydney, is it Sydney? Yeah, oh, he's in Sydney, not Adelaide. That's all right. Yeah. Well, that's a hard area of Sydney, yeah, that's where he's got his pub. Yeah, where are we at? <laughs> So, yeah, you know, so Cornwall's pretty... Cornwall's happening, man. Cornwall that, is officially on the map again. Yeah, it's becoming a bit of a space city. Who'd have thought, Matt? Because it's really space synonymous country. with just where you go and chill out, drink a few ciders, maybe do some surfing. Yeah, have a cream tea. But now it's where you go and look at your fairings and your 
reusable rockets. Yeah, man. But you see, I've thought when they said that they were going to announce a horizontal launch at New uh, at Newquay, mm. I was thinking, well, what can they mean? They must mean Skylon. And then I and then I pedalled back a little bit and thought well, they can't mean Skylon because that would be too outlandish. And then I thought they must mean Virgin. So I kind mm. of did guess that Virgin were going to be the the people doing it. But I'm really excited. I'm that genuinely really excited. Absolutely mega. I'm going to be talking with David Baker on Saturday for next week's can podcast. Can we get his thoughts and views? I, I, I can't wait to get his thoughts and views because I'm really excited and I want him to burst my bubble. <laughs> I, I know I, he's going to. Well, maybe we shouldn't ask maybe him. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe he's going to go, yeah, this is, this is it. It's, it's actually happening. Let's hope so. Yeah, let's hope so. That's really exciting news. And I hope that we've built up to that story with some of the podcasts that we've done like you, the UK launch podcast where yes. we interviewed Robin Robin Brand, who was talking about the Scottish option. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'll tell you what else has happened this week. Well, which, one. So one of the things that I flew out to um, French Guiana to see was the, the, the firing of the P120C. Yes. But like everything in Rocket World, it was delayed by a couple of weeks. Of course it was. But they have successfully fired... The P120C, which, if you've been listening to our previous podcasts, is the largest monolithic carbon fibre solid rocket motor ever built, with 142 tonnes of propellant. That's a lot. So it really should be called the P142C. It would help with my OCD. Yeah, but but apparently it was supposed to have 120 tonnes of propellant, but they managed to get 142 in. So it's it, that's why they call it that. So the P120C is going to equip the boosters of both Ariane 62 yeah. and 64 yeah. and the Vega C mm-hmm. first stage. That's right. So, yeah. So it's a, the C in P120C stands for common. So this common booster will be... That means that they've got this common part that goes with the Ariane 62 and the Ariane 64, which means... And the Vega C, which means that they can just build loads of them and, and use them up on these various launch vehicles and increase the efficiency. It actually cuts the price of Ariane 6 in half what the cost of Ariane what? 5 is. So, yeah, it does make now the... that's Euro- a saving. That is a saving. So it does make the Europeans more um, cost-effective. But now maybe the Europeans are going to have a new spaceport as well exactly. in the shape of Rolbitania. But we'll see, we'll see. So yeah, that's um, really, really exciting. And obviously, I saw uh, all the all the journalists and everything from Ariane and Avio. Avio, but the guys from Avio, I have to say, were super, super cool. I absolutely loved them, and they gave me this uh, little um, charger for my phone, which I, which nice. which has actually saved my bacon today. So thank you, Avio. Yeah, and thanks for mine. Oh, you can have this one, Jamie. Oh, thanks. Man. Well, no, actually, I've got you one. Oh. No, this is one of the things I've got you at home. Oh, and I've thanks, got you a little. Man. I've got you a little model Ariane Six. Oh yes, thanks, dude. You can have it on whatever it is. Nah, you don't want the P120 figures, do you? I don't want any f- stats. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to give you one. Yeah. It's got Go a, on, it's got a specific impulse of 278.5 seconds. That's almost as quick as mine. Yeah, don't think you've understood specific impulse. You no. need to go back to college. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so do you want me to tell you a little bit about the uh, CSG, Jamie? I'd love to hear it. So, yeah, it, it. do you know what? 
instead of me telling you about it, I'm going to go to my interview with Charlotte Beskoff, who is the head of the Issa Karu office. You know, we saw the eight. We had that. We went into the ATV mock-up at, I in, in Cologne. Yeah. Um, she was the deputy head of that program, oh, no like, way. which is she's a serious deal, and she was super, super nice to me all day long. So she sat sat next to me on the bus and told me some great stories, and eventually I, I managed to get twenty minutes of her time and have a little interview where she told me how the whole spaceport worked. Do you want to have a listen? Well, I haven't heard this yet, and I've been really excited to hear it. So roll that tape. Kaboom! My name is Charlotte Beskov. I am the current head of the ESA office here, so I represent the Directorate of Launchers and the rest of ESA here in CSG. I was wondering if you could tell uh, our listeners a little bit more about the Space Centre itself. The Space Centre is really a very, uh, it's a really neat place to be. It's a high-tech, very advanced launch base. It's very flexible. It has been in activity since 50 years. The first launch was exactly 50 years ago in April this year. Today we have three launch pads. We can launch Ariane 5s, Soyuz and Vega rockets and they are all designed to be able to take a different type of payload into orbit, a different size of payload, and we can reach almost any orbit. We're ideally located on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean with fairly free access to the north and to the east. And so, and very close to the equator, which offers us a great advantage uh, in terms of getting payload mass into orbit. Yeah. And uh, so, are you able to tell us a little bit about how the whole space centre? Because one thing I have noticed while being here, it's absolutely vast. So, how does the space centre actually work on a on a almost on a day to day level? How do you, how does it? It is. Function? It is a huge. It's a huge launch base, and. In the beginning, it was um, dimensioned for, for one rocket. And over the years, as the launcher industry progressed, the site also progressed and we gradually increased. We would move from one facility to another facility and gradually building new ones. And this is why we speak about the current launch facility as the ELA-3, the, the third launch pad, um, which implies that we had an ELA-2 and an ELA-1. So... Ariane 1 flew in 1979, so we've been flying Ariane since then. And the the location is ideal because there there's not many people living in this zone, so we have plenty of space. And the reason everything is so spread out is, of course, for safety reasons, because yeah. essentially everywhere you go on site, uh, as soon as you enter the launch area, you're just surrounded by things that can explode, uh, poison you, if you get it on your skin, skin, you'll be damaged. And so to prevent accidents from happening, all these installations where we handle dangerous materials are, are separated by several hundred meters. And we also separate between the payload facilities, the launcher facilities, and the actual launch base. And the clients will see one aspect of the base, the clients being the payloads. The people who work in Centre Technique, who work for CNES, who are in charge of ensuring the safety of the launcher, they will see another aspect of the activity. And the people who work on the launcher, assembling the launcher, making it ready for flight, see a separate activity. But all these activities, they can all, they're all independent, but there are several areas where we touch base. So there's a continuous coordination between the different, the different activities in, in a campaign. 
And each campaign follows a certain amount of set procedures. And so, in very simple terms, the satellite arrives by boat or by plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's transported to its payload preparation facility. They check that it survived the launch. They may or may not do complementary tests in the clean room. Uh, some satellites will deploy solar arrays, others just check that it survived. And then they move into the fueling area, and this is usually always a separate area because of the safety concerns. They fuel it up, they put it under the fairing, and then the, what we call the upper composite, so the satellite plus the fairing, is then taken to the launcher. Now, in order for this to work, the launcher must have been prepared in parallel. So in a different set of buildings, the launcher is being assembled. It has arrived, the main stage has arrived from Europe. It will be fueled here with fuel we produce on site. The boosters, um, essentially the casings arrive from Europe. The solid booster, um, the solid propellant of the boosters is filled here in CSG. It's produced and filled in CSG in the booster production facility. And then the segments are put together. They are transported to the, the integration building and they are put, they're attached to the launcher. Once the launcher has been fully integrated with all its electronics and everything else, it is moved to the final assembly building and being ready to receive the payload. Uh, and once that is done, once the payload is on, then we're more or less ready to go. And while all that is going on, then in parallel, the base is getting ready. And the basis getting ready means we need to configure all the downrange telemetry stations, we need to configure the radars, we need to configure all the telecoms activities so that the payload can communicate, so we can communicate with the downrange stations. People have to be trained on that particular flight. Uh, we've done a series of tests, we've gone through a lot of checks, and then all these activities are supposed to match up. Uh, a couple of days before launch, everybody says they're ready to go. And then uh, two days later or three days later, we're all here. And uh, and by then, you know, nothing more should mm. be done. Everything is fixed and frozen. And then it's just a matter of hoping the weather gods are cooperative. So, yeah. nothing, and, you know, no glitches. Absolutely. So is there is is there one launch that you can consider quite a memorable launch? Is there one of your <laughs> sorts of a, a favorite campaign? Launch every 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 launch campaign is really different. We have some launch campaigns go on for a long time. Before I came here as the representative of the ESA office, I worked as a client. Uh, I represented ESA for the ATV launches. ATV was really complicated because it was we had a very long campaign. We did a lot of integration on site, and in general, before you come, you worked out with Darian Spass. For the client, Darian Spass is the counterpart. We present a planning to Darian Spass that shows them that we can meet our schedule because everybody needs the same resources. So one client will move out of the payload facility and the next client will be moving in. So it's important that you don't underestimate the effort. Mm. And what happened on on one memorable campaign was that the boat that took ATV across the ocean broke down. So instead of arriving, I can't remember if it was August the 1st, we arrived two weeks late. So we started the campaign with two weeks delay. Now that is not a brilliant thing. And then during the campaign, we had we had some difficulties with uh, with our solar array integration. This is a this is a fragile point, and we kept mounting and dismounting the solar arrays, uh, the mechanisms, in order to to cope with the failure because we cannot allow for failures. Hmm. And uh, and eventually having to ship some ba- items back to to Europe and then wait for the replacements, and. 
and unfortunately, this coincided with extreme weather conditions in Europe where Cannes was being inundated and people's homes were being flooded. So I cannot say we had the undivided attention of the back offices either, although they, they did do their best and they did come in and work weekends mm. and Saturdays and Sundays to cope. And in the end, everything still came together. So in the end, the delays were not very, not very many. ATV was also complicated because we prepared the vehicle in two parts. We had an awful lot of mechanical equipment and just, just moving everything around took a long time. And the vehicle, the, 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 the aft part, which contained all the propulsion modules, um, had then to be mated with the forward part, which was pressurized and contained all the, all the uh, cargo. And in one very memorable incident, the, we were carrying food for the ISS. That was standard, mm. standard payload for the ISS. And the French authorities um, decided they would apply the law, which means they give, it gives them the right to open any food coming into France. And we had a hard time trying to explain that this food was not going to France. It was transiting to France, France because it was going into space. Mm. But the authorities uh, decided to apply the, the rules as they were. And they said, um, if you come via Charles de Gaulle, which we would normally mm. all cargo would do, to get from, from US to here is easier to go via Paris. Then they reserved the right to open the packages. So in the end... NASA couldn't take the risk because that would have obviously mm. made their food unfit for consumption. So they had to charter a plane and they had to fly. And the only plane they could get at short notice was a very old aircraft they used for uh, parabolic flights and it didn't have a very wide range. So they had to kind of go island hopping in order to get here. Uh, and then the poor guys, we unloaded all the cargo. We barred to CSG probably on a Saturday because these things never work out as planned. Mm. And then they got caught by a hurricane going back and they got diverted to I don't know where and they got home like three days later. So, so it was just one of these continuous, just every day was different. And, and every day you came into work, you had no idea what was going to happen. Um, but it always, always worked out well. And people at CSG were brilliant. They were always there to help us and uh, try and smooth out the various difficulties that we had because it's in everybody's interest that the payload leaves. Mm. Having and us here, it might be very nice, but the idea is to get us out of here. Yeah, and, and so, so that is there an enormous pressure on 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 time? So yes. that you you've always got the time clicking away. Absolutely. So how how do you build in the contingency to make sure that you're because obviously everything there's always something that, that there's goes always, wrong. There's always something that goes wrong. So in general, what we do is what most clients do is. If you have a commercial client like a telecom satellite, there are, there are so many builders of those type of satellites. It's usually the same teams. They come mm. back. They have a fairly good knowledge of what they have to do. They know where their troublesome areas are. They've built in their margins. It's not so difficult. And their teams come on a regular basis. They might work Monday to Friday and, and allow for putting in an extra shift. CSG is very flexible. We had until Thursday to declare the need for a, an extra night shift uh, or an extra weekend shift, for example. And we, I mean, provided we told them in advance, at least like 48 hours or 36 hours, we could always work even up until 10 o'clock on Saturdays. And if really necessary, we could also work on Sundays. So it was just, it's just a matter of planning ahead. So we tended to use, for at least for ATV, we would work, we would plan for a five-day week and we kept the weekend as a margin. And I think we worked most Saturdays. And if necessary, you could work a night shift as well. 
And so this is how you how you do it. You know roughly you know roughly where your travel areas right. are. It's more difficult with the institutional launches because you've spent maybe seven or eight years building your satellite. Uh, you're not going to take any risks with the launch. If you have a component that breaks down, you need mm. to you need to adapt for it. And if it's a development project, I mean, it's it's not easy to say, oh, that, this is going to take us X time. And also, of course, um, you need to schedule the transports back and forth. But in general, it works very well. But but you build it in, you put a little bit of margin into your schedule. You make sure you have a few Saturdays if you're not planning to work, so you can work them. And you, you bring enough spares and you bring enough spare material and you make sure you have people on hand that you can call even at odd hours because of the time reference so mm-hmm. that you can get immediate help from your back office. And in general, have you, if you've spent like seven years developing a big project and you're getting close to launch, it's not so hard to motivate people. Everybody wants this to succeed. Mm-hmm. And people will, I mean, we had on ATV again, we had people who were getting married who would, you know, you know, they would break their honeymoon and uh, you can reach me at 12 o'clock every day. I'll climb up on a hill and yeah. activate my phone and check if anything's happening. And, and so there's a tremendous will to, 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 to conclude. Yeah. I mean, with that, that does seem to be the sense with a lot of space projects that, that, every, that, that they're often a labor of love. I mean, we, we, yeah. you know, we've, we've got uh, the James Webb, Telescope yeah. uh, um, launching from here soon, yes, or slightly later than we expect. But um, yeah, without that kind of attention to detail, I, I suspect it would uh, be a bit of a non-starter. How, how how do you cope with the, the one thing that is is all the different organisations that are involved at the space centre? So you've got quite a few, you know, Kness, yep. Ariane Space, Ariane Group. There uh, are several know, actors and. And it works because everybody has their role to play. And this has been hashed out in the very beginning, but it has also been modified as we go. So it's, it takes a while for the newcomers to be familiar with it. But once they understand it, it's actually very smooth. There's a very clear distinction about responsibilities. Who is responsible for what? And so, and, and, and I must say, I think it works. Probably it can be streamlined. Everything can. But on a day-to-day basis, it does work. People know what they're supposed to be doing. doing. They know who they should interface with. They know where to get their information. And I would say it, it works, I mean, from my perspective, it works very well. Do you, do you actually, when you're working here, do you actually get to go and see the launches outside <laughs> or do you have to come to, because we're, we're, we're sitting in, the, is it Jupiter 2? This is Jupiter 2, yes. Yeah, um, so would you normally be working from here or would you actually? I have a seat. I, it's not my seat. He's a... <laughs> Isa has a seat inside the control room. And if I'm working the launch, I do not go outside. Mm. None of us in the control room actually go outside because outside is, is a lovely spectacle. But what's important is really what's happening. How's the launch behaving? Mm. Is it behaving as it should? Uh, is it in good state? And that you cannot see from outside. That you see from your screens. So everything that's important is being monitored from the inside. Uh, if I'm not working then obviously, yes, I would, uh, I would go outside and look for it or look at it. Mm. So sooner or later I will. But when I worked here in my, uh, you know, X, X years ago when I was yeah. here on my first tour of duty, uh, over three years we did 30 launches and I did 20 of them. And I think I must have seen two or three. So it, it's not often that we actually see the launch. 
it's almost a pity. <laughs> but but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I suspect I suspect that it's it's pretty exciting in here. Well, well I've just got one last question for you because it's something I've always wondered with 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 this facility where you, you're saying you have to be here because there's so much going on with the launch. A lot of it's automated. How much do you? How much control do you actually have over a, say, an Ariane Five, once it's actually up in, once it's actually going? So, and you, I know you can obviously look at the telemetry, but is there what? Is there anything that you, you can don't, actually do on the ground? You don't pilot it. It's, it's programmed yeah. by the computers. So I'm not a launcher specialist, yeah. so I'm probably but, the wrong but, person to address it. But in yeah. principle, the launcher is qualified to execute its flight software mm. program, and it will execute it. Yeah, uh, and so and we, the launcher will then tell us where it is and what he's doing and what the pressure is mm. and how it's performing and engine cutoffs and ignition yeah. and all that. Uh, it's not piloted remotely. No, I don't think anybody does. No, that. no. But I'm just, I'm just thinking of how you may everyone may feel a little bit of a kind of passive viewer to this. Everything we can do, we do beforehand. Yeah. and even even there. When the synchronized sequence starts at minus seven minutes, mm. we, the, the human intervention stops because there are so many steps to be done in those last minutes that it's better dealt with by computers. Mm. So they're the ones that handle it. And, uh, but these systems have been qualified and well-qualified and tested. So, so that's the reason uh, people... We, we, don't, we don't actually hit a button that says yeah. go. Go. <laughs> we can hit a button, we, the people who are responsible can hit a button that says don't go. Mm. And that's that's the limit of uh, of our commitment. But but the work that's being done before is is the judgment few things are ever black and white. Mm. It's the judgment of whether or not it's safe to go. You might have equipment that is a little bit on the blink, you might have a telemetry station that suddenly, you know, drops out, or you have a, you have a radar that suddenly drops out and comes back. You might have a sensor on the launcher that mm. suddenly fails a test, and, and you know before you determine if it's a sensor or the system, there's margin built into the countdown to allow you to cope with these things, and there are many tests built into the countdown to ensure that all the systems are properly interfacing with each other. Be it the launcher, the launcher has a few systems that interface with the base equipment, and there are count steps in the countdown that allow you to check out. So all this, this is why our countdown takes like ten or twelve hours. And this is this is done very carefully, and it's done. It's completely done, of course, the day of the countdown. But we do a full dress rehearsal three days before launch, depending on the launcher type. We do a complete test with all the downrange stations, like seven days before launch, mm. to make sure they have the right data because you know some of them are far away. Uh, and we do a couple of other tests to make sure that every, all the teams are up to speed. So we do everything we can to make sure that it's completely ready for. Yeah. So so every zero. yeah. So every launch has a, a dress rehearsal that's very yep. specific to that launch. Yep. And even if it's a standard launch, you can say, yeah, well, it's a standard launch, but there is no such thing really. We're not quite yeah. there yet. We're not doing. It's not automobile production where we're produ yeah. producing a thousand a month or even five hundred a month. Every launch is different, and 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 it is true. Every launch has its own particularities. Now we're going to launch Galileo in uh, in a few weeks' time, and uh, it's an area five. We did it last time in December, so mm. it's fairly similar. Same, same, but you yeah. know, yeah. Slightly different. Slightly different. Yeah, and then you've got uh, 
quite a few launches. Bepi, Bepi Colombo is one yes. of my favourites that yes. we've, I've just, just seen it, so I'm quite excited about that. It's extraordinary. Uh, yeah. And it's really wrong to speak about one payload. Bepi is three payloads. Yeah. And uh, so actually we have nine satellites on site, basically, and nine ESA payloads, except one of them is Japanese. Yeah. But that's quite extraordinary. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, and yeah. Uh, so that that is really it must be it must be a record. Yeah, well, and I imagine quite hard to manage the way that they flow through the entire space center. And Kness does this really well. Uh, it's very it's, it's it's interesting because they've had it very well organized with key persons who handle the client interfaces and then key services that are responsible for the infrastructure to make sure all the buildings and a system with on call people that you can call them almost any time, day or night. To make sure you know anything that breaks or fails or needs doing or need help with or people suddenly realize oh I need some extra equipment or my computer has failed I need some help and uh, I need to get into the office for whatever reason you know they lift the phone and somebody will come. Yeah, and with the arrival of Ariane Six and Vega C, that seems to me as though it's almost. It's it's an attempt to simplify, if anything, the the, the procedures that are around the space center. Is that correct? Is that again? Bec- uh, yeah, it is. But but we again separate between the launcher processing, the payload processing, and the centre technique processing. So, Ariane Six and Vega C, they will simplify their launcher preparation activity, mm. which is as if you can say all these these three lines go on in parallel, and then they meet up for the launch. They meet up here and there in between, but. Of course, if they can cut down the time it takes them to mount the launcher, um, you save time. You save uh, if you save on the number of manipulations you have to do. You're also cutting down on the risk mm. that something will go wrong. So it, it makes makes good sense. In terms of Beppe, it wouldn't make any difference because Beppe's preparation is Beppe's preparation. Yeah. It's independent of the launcher. As long as it's ready to meet the launcher, then you know Ariane Six needing. 12 days or 25 days makes no difference to Beppi. Yeah. What makes a difference to the site is how quickly can we go from one client to the next. Yeah. But then again, if we have several clients that need seven months of preparation, mm. that is going to be in itself a bottleneck unless we have more payload facilities. But on the other hand, we have quite a few payload facilities and, um, and we make optimum use of them. Then, then it also depends on the size of the payload. Big payload, you have fewer options. Smaller payloads, we've got S1A, we've got S1B, we've got S5C, we have S5B, the fueling hull. They're actually going to use now for one of, for Aeolus mm. because Beppe that needs to fuel in S5B will not need to fuel. Uh, Aeolus should leave before Beppe needs fueling. So, so we optimize the resources. And um, so, but... So the launcher is one thing, but that will cut yeah. the costs for the client, and that's important if you want to be attractive to people. And then, and then um, there are other actions ongoing to see how we can streamline the everyday operations. But I would say that's that's normal work. That's something that people do all the time. Yeah. Uh, because this is a you know we do a lot of these processes are the same for every launch, irrespective of launcher type. Yeah. And if we can, if we do very few launches, we might need to do it a few more rehearsals and a few more tests. If we do a lot of launches, then people are fairly well up to speed. So, so you, you know, there can be some flexibility in there. So as a final question, what was your, have you got a favorite moment while you've been at the, uh, the Space Center here? 
obviously, obviously the satisfaction of a successful launch, um, watching the pleasure of the clients, uh, is always spectacular. There's so much effort going yeah. into it. So I would say the Galileo launch before Christmas was mm. such a moment because it was the end of a very difficult year, which they really finished in style. Mm. And the Galileo launch is, of course, a very important one mm. because it's also for the Commission. It's important to Europe mm. because we need that satellite system if we want our independence from, from the other existing navigational systems. Um, it's a triumph for Galileo. It's a yeah. triumph for the Cooperation Commission and, and uh, the European Space Agency. It was a triumph for the teams. Uh, it capped a difficult year. The countdown was complicated also a little bit because of the dreadful weather, which sometimes happens. Although in general, rain doesn't bother us. Mm. But it's nicer for the VIPs if it doesn't rain too much. Um, so it was a good, it was a good ending to a, to a really tough year. Fabulous. Yeah. She's great. Yeah, no. She's she, super she, interesting. Yeah, she's super, super nice. And yeah, so there's some really interesting details in that. When you're there, you realise that this is a working, you know, a, a really complicated working place that requires an enormous amount of effort, skill and uh, hard work. But also everyone that I met, when we went round, we went to every single building. So mm. we would go to a building where they were making the solid propellant in this enormous, like, Kenwood Chef mixer thing. Mm. And the bloke would show us round, and obviously he could switch between about three or four different languages, depending on who he, which group he was talking to. Uh, but, yeah, these are busy people. These are we, these were people that, that are busy. But when we were went into their little factory they would stop what they were doing and then take us on a really kind of calm guided tour around their little bit yeah even the the sort of head of the Beppe Colombo program took 20 30 minutes out of his day to stand there and explaining the program and everything to us and yeah, it was like it's really oh, good, man, isn't it? you're you're so lovely these people have got a lot on their plate but they've got time to talk about it knowing that people are going to be interested by this stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, another guy that uh, I met there, because one of the, obviously there's three launch vehicles. There's the Ariane 5, Soyuz and Vega, right? Yeah. Now, this next interview, this is the guy who is the program manager uh, for Vega at ESA, in, in, and he's an Italian. Uh, and he, we, we literally were sort of eating lunch and, and I said, do you mind me giving you an interview? And he, he stopped his lunch and we went off for a little interview. <laughs> so, and we had some rum together, which was great. And he, Liquid this, lunch. Like liquid it. lunch. So it was beautiful. And, and he's re again, you know, this guy absolutely loved his job as well. As soon as we stepped onto the Vega mobile gantry, he... He just wanted to talk about it and just absolutely really loved super it. Passionate. He was just That's super, what you want. super passionate about what he did. So this was Stefano Bianchi, and he is the Vega program manager. So I tried to quiz him about how hard it was to get Vega working in the first place. Because the one thing that's really odd is that it, it's kind of like it didn't seem like it was needed at the time. But he's obviously had the vision of of going. No, this thing's actually needed. And as soon as the Russians started putting the price up of their their engines, mm. um, it suddenly was needed. So it was lucky that they actually started developing this thing. Yeah. And it's quite hard to make solid propellant rockets because you've got to have a lot of infrastructure to do it. Mm. You, know, you need the plant that makes the, 
the uh, rocket propellant, you need the buildings that mix it, and then you need the, bu the buildings that then cook them in like massive vats. So this is like a huge Sounds undertaking. Expensive, Matt. So it is expensive, and, and it's real expertise as well. So it's not the most obvious thing to do. So, but it's been super successful, this. So anyway, here is my little interview with Stefano. And notice a couple of weeks ago, I said that the only thing that stresses out uh, scientists, the only thing they become superstitious. Is a rocket launch. The rocket launch. Check this out. Here we go. Here's the Stefano's interview. Ascolta. Uh, I'm Stefano Bianchi from the European Space Agency. I'm responsible director for developments of launcher development, space transportation developments. And uh, I've been involved in Iron uh, 5 development and then I was director of uh, Vega development from the beginning up to the first flights and now Orion 6 and Vega C and the Space Rider. Okay, yeah, well, one question I'd really, that I think is really, really interesting having spent some time here at the, at the Space Center is how do you take a project like Vega from its very first thought? In fact, what were the first thoughts of why you wanted it and how do you push that through into becoming a reality? Let's say the first thought were uh, we need a small launcher in Europe uh, because we had at that time only RM5, which is a uh, huge lorries. And say so there was a market developing on small, when we say small, it's uh, 1,700 kilos uh, satellites in low Earth orbit. And we said, okay, let's uh, try to use as much as possible what we have in Europe to develop a launcher. But we call it small, but then it's 130 yeah. tons and 30 meter high launcher. So to develop a launcher. So the first step was uh, to get the money, so to convince uh, participating states. Uh, and Italy took the lead for that uh, for that launch, and we convinced seven participating states uh, to fund this development program. And then uh, the fund starts uh, because uh, you have to do it, uh, and uh, we had to build the. The, the launch base here in Kuru and uh, was there any the was place. there any pushback for the for the for the getting that money up front first of all was there was was there any horse trading what what was the uh, how, how do you go about I mean there was a lot of work of uh, for uh, to convince member states uh, in particular through their industry that uh, it was. Uh, a good project uh, to go and that uh, there would have been economic viability mm -hmm. on the project uh, and the market for the project, which I'm speaking about the early 2000s, when at that time many member states were not convinced because we were close to the end of the Soviet Union, so in the 90s, end of the 90s, early 2000s, it was very easy to find uh, ballistic uh, missiles reconverted at very cheap price. And everybody was saying, well, but why you want to develop a new launch, a European launch, why I can buy a uh, Russian ballistic missile for nothing? And then uh, you always have to see what will happen mm. in seven, eight years when you develop a launch, because it's not for the immediate, because it takes time. Yeah. So was there some European technologies that you could leverage to make the, the, the Vega project uh, yes, it, the, the main technology was a solid propulsion because we developed solid propulsion for Ariane 5. It was a great uh, advancement with a booster of Ariane 5 and in particular in Italy. So Italy took the lead 
because of his heritage on solid propulsion, we said, okay, let's do a cheap launcher based on solid propulsion with three solid propulsion stage. And more than that, let's develop also another system capability in Italy for this launcher. Mm. That was uh, then we we decided to to use as much as possible existing plants to to limit the investment in industrial plants and focus on some technologies, in particular for solid propulsion on composite uh, cases, uh, which uh, enables to increase radically the performance of the solid boosters, electromechanical actuator, avionics, and so we had some areas where we wanted to increase the technology content. And how many uh, nations are involved? With seven. Seven nations are involved. Yes, and and so do you, how, how do you split up the responsibilities for various elements? I mean, Italy took the lead, so the, the propulsion was uh, uh, mostly Italian and the system Italian. Then the second country is France, which gave also a great uh, contribution to the first stage in particular, and of course on the ground facility here. And then we split up uh, the responsibility based on the industrial heritage of Ariane 5, uh, so structures in Spain, in the Netherlands, uh, transvector control in Belgium, uh, fairing in Switzerland. So we had, uh, let's say, we, we tried to, to use as much as possible what was the European experience in the sector. And how does Vega C and Ariane 6 uh, take the project forward? What's the I mean, Ariane 6 and Vega C are the step forward uh, in terms of uh, technology, in terms also of uh, uh, using uh, the same uh, solid rocket motor, which is an improved version of a P80, which goes from 88 tons to 142 tons. And they use the same uh, engine for, we use the same engine for Ariane 6 and uh, Vega C which is a unique choice. Uh, nobody has done it ever in the world, so to, to have uh, a solid rocket was, motor used for two launchers, two was, different launchers. Was there, who, was there a moment where people suddenly realized that, that you, you could get this brilliant cost saving by having uh, your Yeah, it was in 2014. Vehicle. We had uh, a lot of discussion on uh, what uh, should have been the new, uh, the new generation of following Ariane 5, so we were studying the new generation of Ariane 6 and the possible evolution of Vega. Why an evolution of Vega to much better the market, so we needed a bit of um, an increase of, uh, of performances and a cost reduction, so basically to increase the performance at the same cost, and we are increasing by 50%. And the same, we needed a decrease of the cost with respect to Ariane 5 by 50%. So that was a bit the, the main idea of using the same engine because, of course, you save development costs and you increase the rate and you reduce, reduce also the production cost. Yeah. So when, once you have Vega C up and running, is there, are people already thinking about what the next step we always have to think to the next step because uh, who stops in this business is dead. So yeah. we have to think every day how we shall improve our launchers and how we can reduce the cost of our launcher, improve the flexibility, be more towards the customer. Clearly, that is, uh, and uh, we are already thinking what will be the next steps, and, and we are already working on the next steps. And the next steps are 
on liquid propulsion to produce engines. One of the main technology is additive layer manufacturing, which mm. is really a breakthrough which can uh, radically reduce the cost of liquid engines. We are working always on solid propulsion to reduce more and more the cost of the processes on the upper stages uh, structure. So it's uh, it's already going on. Any final thoughts about the the, the success of the of the Vega program? What 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 for you was has made it come alive and and be a program that, that that's seen quite a lot of success? The wonderful thing when you work on launcher, which can be wonderful or very bad, <laughs> it is that you work for uh, many, many years, uh, because uh, it's eight, nine, uh, ten years, and uh, one day you arrive and you have a launch. Mm. So, and it's like uh, you have fixed the, the show at the theater, and, uh, and the premiere is yeah. fixed, and you can't do anything if you are not ready. There is always some thoughts, uh, something to mm. be improved. Uh, but you know that you have to launch and uh, suddenly the time is uh, decreasing and uh, everybody will see what, uh, what yeah. happens uh, because uh, there is no excuse. I mean, ever it works, ever it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, so, and that is uh, really some uh, tension uh, which is uh, great, of course, it's great when you, have a, yeah. when you have a success. And that's also why I, I always respect and I, I cry when there is uh, an unsuccess also in competition because it's, it's so strong uh, what you feel uh, when you see your uh, object flying uh, or, or when you see that you have a problem uh, that, uh, uh, let's say, it's like a family of rocket yep. scientists. <laughs> I feel it like that. Yeah. Like, I don't know how to say it, but it's... Uh, no, that, yes, I mean, <laughs> so that, that, that very first launch uh, here at the uh, in, in no. Guyana, uh, presumably, did, were you aware of the kind of emotional uh, part of how it was going to feel, or did that even take you by surprise? Just how intense it was. I mean, when I was revisiting the statistics of the day, the days before, and the statistics were clearly against us. So it's less than fifty percent of. Uh, um, is more than 50% of failure probability for a completely new launch system. So you can understand that. <laughs> so, at every stage, separation, we say, okay, let's go on, let's go to next. And yeah. then uh, we arrived uh, with a perfect flight. I have to say, and it was really a wonderful, wonderful day. Quite brilliant. And did, did anyone do something stupid like growing beards? Did you do it? Oh, of course. Oh, <laughs> we have. So many stories on that, on superstition. You cannot, you cannot even imagine how rocket scientists can be superstitious, which is a completely oxymoric. Yeah. I don't know if oxymoron yeah, no, is. Uh, yeah, it's an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> it's an oxymoron <laughs> for <laughs> between uh, science uh, and uh, magician. But uh, we are very superstitious. Yes, <laughs> that's brilliant. That's a really ace bit to end on. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, let's uh, get back to lunch. What do you think of that, Jamie? I thought it was another banger. He's a banger. He's a, I really liked him. He was, honestly, I can't tell you how enthusiastic he was about Vega. It's so nice to hear because the worry is that you're going to get someone in such a great position and they're just going to be someone who's very smart, but they're not massively bothered. And to hear the passion from Stefano, 
it's really heartwarming. Mm-hmm. Now, there was some, I have to say, we had lots of discussions over drinks and meals and things. And quite a few of the French, in particular, journalists mm. and people, space experts and industry leaders, were quite negative about Elon Musk and the way that he, what they were called dumping like price dumping yeah. on the market. So they were not that impressed. Some of them weren't even that impressed about reusability even. Right. So it's interesting that there was definitely but not a great vibe be, for Musk. There must be quite a bit of jealousy with, with what he's doing. Do you because think jealousy? He's the, I think a little bit because he's the poster boy of revolutionising the space industry. No, I actually, I think these people were serious enough not for it to be jealousy, and it was much more that they were worried that they couldn't really compete because he was using the money from COTS, for example, Mm. to actually subsidise and do lower prices. Got it. Now, I have to say, Eric Berger... Oh, was was oh. like really quite vocal in his defence of Elon Musk on these on these things. It was great having him there because I would have crumbled under under <laughs> the Elon Musk bashing, but he was definitely there to to put the case forward, nice. which I, which he did very eloquently, of course. Oh, of course he yes, did. Yes. Um, I've got one more interview, which actually has my favourite moment of the. Uh, which which do you want first? Interview with the. Uh, director of operations Jean-Luc Voyeur and he's the director of operations for a launch Mm. so when a launch comes up he becomes the director of operations which is a pretty uh, amazing job i.e. the commander-in-chief of a launch campaign so he basically controls the room as they're launching and everything comes That's through. That's no small task. Comes through them yeah so it's it's a great job it's what's known as the Didio Okay, so what's the other option, Matt? The other option You're giving is... giving me one. My, the option is to listen to that interview and him show me how he does a countdown because he's the, he's the voice of the countdown. So oh, I'd love that. if you listen to the, uh, of something like VA222... Turn up, 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 <laughs> nine! Uh, well, no, he does it obviously. Like well, no, Sorry. not quite like that. Okay. Uh, but do you, what, what do you want to hear first? My interview and his countdown or my attempt at the countdown... In the control room. I'd like to hear his interview first and then save yours for okay. a little treat at the end. Okay, so here is Jean-Luc Voyer, the didio of many a launch campaign. Écoutez. Écoutez. <laughs> okay, so Jean-Luc Voyer, I'm from the Kness company. So as you, as you may know, the Kness is responsible of the base and uh, so the DDO from the CNES is responsible of the, the world uh, campaign and uh, specifically during the, the final countdown. So we have, I have a team, the DDO have a team and uh, we prepare the world uh, campaign during the, um, during the preparation of the spacecraft, during the fueling phase. Once it's, it, the spacecraft goes to the launcher, so Handspace takes the lead uh, for the final preparation of the, of the launch. And during the, the final chronology, it's uh, the DDO who manage the, the whole uh, countdown. Yes. Okay, so uh, is, there, is there much competition to be the DDO? 
as in presumably it, it's like it's it's a a prize job. How did you how did you manage to uh, get yourself in the seat? You're right. There are a lot of people who, who would like to to be DDO. So we have uh, it, we are we are a team. Is uh, in this team where you have a lot of uh, specialists in different systems on. Um, Every DDO, each DDO has a project manager, um, uh, so we have um, we have to make some coordinations, the management of the operations on, on the, of the teams. So we have some skills in management. Uh, we are expert in dedicated system, and we. We have to follow the whole systems, so we have to know a little bit on the whole systems too. What was the first client that you uh, had this position? Did when? Yeah. You know, it's four years ago. Four years ago. Do you yeah. remember what the launch campaign was? Yes, for sure. We always remember <laughs> of, the, of the first campaign, yes, as a DDO. So it was VA222 on uh, two telecommunication spacecraft, and it was... Uh, in May of uh, 2000, uh, uh, 2014. Right. Yeah. And I'm assuming it all went well. Finally, yes. <laughs> yeah, because during the chronology, we had some small issues, mm. but uh, finally, it was it was okay. Every, everything was 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 very very nice. So on the, on the morning of when you woke when you on the morning of when you had your first go at the in the seat, how did how were you feeling? It's very stressing because it's uh, it's the first time that uh, uh, you do it, and uh, you know that everybody's everybody. It's very important for everybody for the customers first because it's about their spacecraft. It's very important for Unspace, for the CNES, for ESA. So it's very important that everything goes very very good, but. In the CNES um, department, we are very well prepared. We, have, we, we all have our procedures, we are trained, we have some trainings, so that makes it uh, easier for the final con- chronology. And you, you, you have a dress rehearsal beforehand? Yes, for sure. Every, for every lunch, we have a dress rehearsal for, for and five, four days before the, the final chronology, yes. So, that makes us Takes the becoming yeah. confident, more confident yeah. for the for the D-Day. Yeah. Can you give me? Uh, can you do a countdown for me through for the sure, system? For sure, for sure, I can. Be... Yes, I can. Uh, yes. So, à tous de l'idéo, attention pour les décomptes finales. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. 3, 2, 1, top Allumage Vulcain, allumage UAP, décollage. Ah, uh, there we go. And you can feel, I can, I can even just oh, feel yeah, that. Him, I can feel like... <laughs> <laughs> Tous les paramètres à bord sont normaux, yes, so it's very... Uh, how, how many of those have you done for, for real? How many what? How, how many launches have you actually done for real? Uh, six. Six. six and they're yeah. all Ariane fives, or no, uh, and five, one Vega, and two, two, two Soyuz. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you do. A... Yeah. So it's not particular to a, a launch vehicle. It's just particular to the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To the space center itself. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
Brilliant. Thank you very much You're for welcome. Uh, spending the time to, to it's answer it's my a pleasure, yes. questions. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that cool, hey? That, this, that's the guy, that's the voice you hear. Jean-Luc, ah, brilliant stuff. That's so, brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's the voice you hear when, when you tune in to watch an Ariane launch. I love that. Oh, one of the many voices. Uh, as you, it's, a, it's a really highly competitive job, that one. But do you want to hear my attempt? Here we go. So Don't the, let me down. No, no. So I just want to point out my attempt. <sighs> he is Already making it. Jean-Luc spent the time to write out what I needed to say into my notebook. Because I couldn't, because he, he thought I could just remember these sentences. Right. And of course, I was like, "What?" Right. <laughs> but I did, I did the countdown on my own. I, 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 I can count down backwards in French, which was stressful because I'd never tried it before. And I yeah. thought, Maybe I can't. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the one to ten normally. Okay. <laughs> so, so I was like, so I thought, because Richard Hollingham had just given it a go, and there's a button that you press, a screen button. It's like really space age because it's like a button on the screen, mm. and you press the button. And the whole thing goes to the entire spaceport, unless you press another button that mutes the rest of the spaceport. <laughs> so luckily, we pressed the button that muted the spaceport. Is port, this a good I'm... time to bring up the story where you did your Miss Dynamite here? <laughs> it could have been a very. Should similar... we wait till next week? That's yeah, the cliffhanger. Yeah, cliffhanger. Miss Dynamite st story. But yeah, so luckily it was muted. Uh, there's a lot of chuckles in the room. I don't know why. I think they. I don't think they. He were impressed Did with my French, my French accent. Ah, well, I'd love to hear it. So here we go. Let's go. Atout de Didier, attention pour le décompte final. Dix, neuf, huit, sept, six, cinq, quatre, trois, deux, un. Top. Allemand volcan. Alma Epa Decolage. You know what? Lossod, Lossod, Lossod. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm considering that as my interview for being the, the operation director of operations for the new UK spaceport. Well, I think you've got the job after hearing that. I. So, just leaves one space fact, Jamie. Matt, if I said to you, what is the total mass of the asteroid belt compared to the moon, or our moon, I should say? As a, as a percentage? As a percentage, please. What so would you say? So, the percentage of the asteroid belt, the total mass of the asteroid belt, as All compared the to the moon. in the asteroid belt, clumped together, compared How to much the do they weigh compared to the moon? Yes. 300%? 300% is your guess. Yeah. Matt, you'd be wrong. It's 4%. Do not adjust your sets. <laughs> I said 4%. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you a question here, Jamie. Here we go. Which is, uh, that, that is actually amazing. That, That's that, insane, that, like, isn't it? Because there's, I mean, in the asteroid belt, there's bodies like Ceres and, uh, and, and things like that, yeah. which are massive. And also when you, you hear it's about, a, I mean, Ceres is about a minor mining point. asteroids, which are huge. <laughs> Yes. In but other then, words, the I think the moon is much bigger than you give it credit for. Than we think. Yeah, it's way bigger than you give it credit. I, I still think about it like a big golf, golf ball. Yeah, made of cheese. I, yeah, I don't think it's much bigger than a golf yeah. ball, is it? Yeah. That's why. Like, so the whole asteroid belt was so. It, on a similar theme as yeah. that, right? What is the average distance between asteroids 
in the asteroid belt. Now, I think we've mentioned this before on 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 the podcast because when Voyager was traveling to when Voyager, for example, was traveling to Jupiter, yeah, they were worried that it might get broken up when it traveled through the asteroid belt. But when you hear this statistic, you'll say, "Oh, yeah, it's totally unlikely." Uh, I've totally forgotten, but I'm going to go with uh, two thousand miles. Two thousand miles, not bad. It's actually six hundred thousand miles <gasps> so almost a million kilometers between each that is my asteroid brain. so yeah what the, the hell was harrison ford <laughs> worried about <laughs> so the asteroid so the asteroid belt yeah just wait a minute are you telling me that scene in star wars didn't happen no but that was a planet that had just been blown up so they might have they may have been like fresh debris and actually and this was a long time ago in a galaxy far far away it wasn't yeah. necessarily our asteroid belt, no but did did it? you notice in the new star wars have we mentioned this that the kessler run was they actually repaired the mistake did they yeah did you not notice I that i didn't know so that so in solo have you watched solo not yet don't give it anything i'm not going to give it away then but yeah that you, you know on the wait pod- did you like it I loved it. Oh, Absolutely it loved obviously, it. It's obviously... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. I think you might like it. All right, let's move on. But anyway, but the <laughs> remember the Kessler run, what does he do it in? Oh, I can't remember. It does it in 12 parsecs. Parsecs, that's it. Yeah, so 12 parsecs is obviously a distance, not a time. Yes. But... They explain it in 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 solo. No, it's really good. So go and watch it, and and it's like makes sense. It oh, actually there we makes, go. It's worth actually, it just for that. Yeah, it is almost worth it just for that. So it, it makes me feel like a fool that, that I didn't realise that that's and what they meant. Childish Gambino's in it, so it's got to yeah, be Childish Gambino, who Lando. the girl, who two girls at work think I look like, which is just about the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard since someone said you were the white no, Grace Jones. Kind of, <laughs> I can kind of see it. You're the white. I'm the white Chinese, yeah, I can Childish see it. Gambino. Fair enough. There we go. Grace Jones so and Charles coming, coming to you. Yeah. Jamie. Yes. You've been listening to the Interplanetary Podcast. Putting, putting the, the A's back into space. Two, one, decollage. Bye bye. Bye everyone. See you soon. Bye. See you next week.